0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Julie Douglas.
1: Now Julie, I grew up in the American South. Uh, so I, I have all these memories of, uh, of rural individuals with their trucks. And their cam- banjos. And well, no, not their banjos. But okay. often, like, they'd be a, uh, they're often Rifles in the back of the uh, of the truck, you know, mm-hmm. in the window where you can see it. Uh, you know, big mudded up trucks, and uh, and uh, th- there would be certain you know iconography that would go on the truck. Um, sometimes it would be uh, a beloved cartoon character um, urinating onto uh, <laughs> onto a, a, a rival truck manufacturer's logo, but oftentimes it was an image of a deer because naturally deer hunting was was really mm-hmm. big in the area. It continues to be really big in. Um, rural areas throughout the United States doing no small part to the fact that uh, we've uh, disrupted the, uh, the, the predator-prey relationship in the environment, and you have way too many deer, and mm-hmm. they have to have to be culled, and so you turn to hunters and allow them to go out there and cull the
0: deer. And if you're a manly man yeah. in the American South, you're going to want to show your hunting prowess by featuring those antlers wherever you can, right?
1: Oh, yes. So on, on, the, wall, on uh, the wall, on the vehicle, on the um just yeah just about anywhere on just the iconography of the uh of the antlers uh just ends up uh, just about everywhere and it's by no means purely a fascination of the american south or even american mm-hmm. culture or even modern culture uh it's one of the the really fascinating things about about deer and antler motifs is that when you you look at them and you start looking back through history they they go back pretty much all the way uh we we they go back to at least 30,000 uh bce and, uh, and you see myth cycles around the world mm-hmm. that in, involve them because deer and, uh, and deer-like creatures, your moose, your caribou, your reindeer, um, et cetera. These, uh, the, these creatures are, are found around the world, particularly in the northern hemisphere.
0: And, and they become, the associations are really potent, right? Very mm-hmm. powerful. And in fact, there is, uh, something called the Kernonos, which is Celtic for the horned god. Uh, you find that in Celtic mythology, and he is connected with male animals, particularly the stag in rut, to give you an idea, mm-hmm. which has led him to be associated with fertility and vegetation. So you've got this sort of wild god of the forest creature who's decked out in these huge antlers. And what I like about this example in mythology is that it does really kind of carry with it uh, not just the folklore tradition but the sort of magical thinking that one can assume with this image and i stumbled upon this bit of this 17th century samurai named honda tadakatsu who would literally like do the sort of embodied cognition with antlers fastened onto his helmet when he went onto the battlefield to to intimidate to really try to embody this idea of this this uh you know in this sense a warlike creature ah. doing battle
1: now that's that can be a bit dangerous as uh, i'll get to in a second because you can uh, you can potentially turn into a deer that's one of the big risks in yeah and uh, we've
0: seen this in japanese uh, uh samurai reenactments mhm a kid
1: <laughs> now uh you you mentioned the, the masculine deer Antlered deity uh, there, but that doesn't mean that that all deer uh, uh, entities are necessarily masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, the deer goddess of ancient Siberia, Esther Jacobson argues that uh, the deer is rooted uh, in a, a symbolic system revolving around uh, an animal mother. Uh, so in this myth cycle, the deer mother is is kind of like a tree of life and a source of life and death. And uh, there's a there's a fabulous uh, little article uh, titled "The Deer as a Symbol" by psychologist Thomas R. Hirsch, and I'll make sure to link to that. On the podcast landing page, accompanying this episode, but he argues that the when the deer is symbolized as a female go- goddess, it's it's definitely from a male point of view, and it gets into the male psychology, not only of like sort of gender politics of mm-hmm. uh, of, of of human breeding, but also. Uh, The hunt and uh, and the certain amount of of guilt regarding the hunt. He says, quote, perhaps 60% of the deer tales I have read concern the elusiveness of the deer in the hunt and therefore express the psychology of male hunters. The hunter chases a fast and elusive deer deeper and deeper into unknown areas of a vast forest into some strange world. And he goes on to identify five key motifs in deer mythology. And surprising, uh... And this will, this will come out more as we discuss antlers and the science of antlers. But, uh, he, he found little to nothing in the way of, uh, myths that were dealing with the cyclical shedding of antlers. Mm-hmm. Now, if any listeners out there have some examples of that they would like to bring to mind, send them our way because I'd love to, I'd love to read them. But anyway, um Hirsch points out the following: You have antlers as protection, so you hang them on the wall, you wear them in the battle, you put them over the door. They're you know a a magical symbol to protect you. The second is a deer as a victim or a persecuted animal. I think Mm -hmm. that's that's very obvious uh, due to our hunting of the deer. Uh, Then there's deer as riches or wealth, uh, which is uh, is key to any kind of hunting culture where you kill a deer and then you can feed your family. You can you can uh, use every part of the deer in many of these traditions to. To provide for a family or a community, uh, and then there's guilt over the hunt, and this is this is really interesting because he mentions a, a few different stories. Uh, for instance, uh, the, in the, there's a Pueblo story in which the the deer, elk, antelope, and eagle were all originally man-eating monsters, and the gods punished them by making them human food. So it kind of gives us an out, like like should I feel bad about killing and eating the deer? No, because that deer used to be really awful, and the gods are punishing it, so mm-hmm. it's cool. Uh, an, a similar one uh, you'll find in the Siberian traditions, which say that the elk once had six legs and lived in the sky, and it got so conceited that the god Numi had its two back legs cut, cut off and then threw it down to earth, and then uh, then it's okay to eat it. And uh it, you, you see various tales of this kind. Uh, other ones include um, ideas that the deer is born again after you kill it, or the deer grants the hunter... Uh, permission to kill it.
0: Which again all, uh, comes back to this guilt idea over yeah. it, right? And these, these sort of, um, very difficult negotiations we make psychologically when we talk about our food sources, which we've talked about before in the book. Some we love, some we hate, yes. some we
1: eat. We did a podcast episode called Don't Eat the Panda. Mm-hmm. And I'll include a link to that on the landing page for this episode. But if you want, go back listen to that because we get really deep into uh, these discussions of how we feel about the animals we consume.
0: And the semantic distancing with words.
1: Yes. Uh, finally, the motif, the final motif that he points out Deer as a guide to another world. Now, deer, uh, if you've encountered them, you can attest to this. They're elusive. They're light-footed. They're speedy. They flee into the deep forest. And if you're hunting them, this could draw you in after them into deeper woods into areas that resonate with uh, supernatural ideas. So you have uh, like the deer people of Scottish myth. You have various uh, accounts where uh, where deer are take the form of alluring women, and they're kind of like sirens uh, leading you on to destruction. Um, and, and we have multiple tales where you have to deal with the danger of becoming a deer. Uh, there's a story of a fourth century a Chinese hunter who fell and became a stag and then ran away and his son gave up hunting. In European myth cycles, there's the character Brutuchin, who was turned into a roe or a, a little stag because he drank from a forbidden pool. Uh, you have, uh, animal transformations throughout uh, Native um, American tribes, people's uh, belief systems, uh, parts of rituals where, um, where you're You're donning the the hides of deer, using antlers of deer, uh, and you run the risk of uh, catching deer fever in which the hunter becomes a deer and flees into the forest and never comes back again. Um, And one of my my favorites, and I have a blog post about this is going to come out uh, because you see it as a motif in art. You have the Greek hunter Asetian who comes upon the goddess Diana bathing naked in a pool. And so she's... This is, of course, a dangerous thing to do, to glimpse a, a, a god or a goddess naked. And uh, so she's furious, and she turns him into a stag um, so that he can never tell anybody about what he saw. So then he runs off, and he's torn apart by his own hunting dogs. He's unable to stop them mm-hmm. because by turning him into a, a deer, she took away his voice. So he, he couldn't tell anybody about seeing her naked, but he also couldn't call off his own dogs. So. I'm
0: familiar with that just from an episode of Duck Dynasty. They were just sitting what? around talking really? about all this. No. No. Okay. I wish they were. That would be well, kind of see, great. Well,
1: see, they're, they're duck people, so they probably have a whole different set of of legends about potentially turning into well, a duck.
0: Well, right, but they're hunters at the core, so yeah. if they're duck people, they're deer people. Now, one of the things I was thinking about, too, was Pan with his flute leading oh, yes. people away, you know, the the horned Pan. Um, so, uh, you know, we all have some sort of familiarity with this trope of deer and antlers and this sort of mystical creature. And if you think that this isn't translated into some sort of industrial complex, well you're wrong because it turns out that antlers are a huge it's a huge commodity. Uh New Zealand is the world's largest producer of deer antler, followed closely by Australia and Canada, both increasingly uh more so. And Korea is probably the world's largest user of antlers with with an appetite for all sorts of things antler
1: and, indeed, we've been using antlers for for ages and ages because, essentially, you have, uh, if you catch them in time, you have this hardened bone structure mm-hmm. that is sharpened, that's smooth. Nice that, tool. Yeah, nice. Seems to lend itself well to use. And, indeed, uh, there was a 500,000-year-old antler hammer found at Earthham Pit in Boxgrove, England. And this would have been uh, used by an extinct species of Homo heidelberginus, the first humans to colonize Europe. And then, uh, also of interest, uh, 2010, uh, an excavation in Motala, Sweden. Mm. Uh, a carved bone was unearthed at a Mesolithic site, uh, that's rich in ancient artifacts from uh, about 4,000 to 6,000 BCE. And, uh, what, the, what they found was, uh, you know, it could have been just a mere tool with a, with a phallic, um, theme to it. Mm. But one end definitely looks like, uh, a penis. And so mm. there are, there's some discussions that it could have been the, the world's first known uh, sex toy so
0: yeah according to clara moskovitz writing for live science the dildo like object is about four inches that's 10.5 centimeters long and about 0.8 inches in diameter two centimeters and uh if you look at the picture it's sort of it's very uncanny
1: yeah, yeah, it's pretty unmistakable, and they point out it, it would be it would have been unmistakable at the time. It's not like somebody made this tool and then other people, other tribes people, just snickered at him uh, at the accidental uh, resemblance. So
0: right, and some people say, well, maybe it was just something that was uh, symbolic, used in fertility rites or something, not yeah. necessarily used as a sex aid. But well, probably never know.
1: Yeah, I mean, needless to say, uh, phallic motifs are found just about everywhere you look, and they've been there uh, throughout human history and even uh, perhaps before human history. So it, uh, it, it doesn't take a huge stretch of the imagination to, uh, to, to think about it in that light. Now, um, it, it's interesting to note, um, and this was pointed out in a 1973 edition of Nature, that the anthropologist, when studying excavated bone remains, often finds it difficult to distinguish specimens worked by hominids and uh those that have been say gnawed on by carnivores, hungry rodents, but also herbivores uh such as a uh, norian Nor- such as a Norwegian reindeer or the Scottish red deer, um according to a then uh, anthropologist at the British Museum, these gnawed bones and antlers can resemble artifacts worked by human hands and have sometimes been mistaken for them, so mm-hmm. even as we've used antlers in our uh, construction of tools since time out of mind, it's easy to make the mistake uh, by looking at nod remnants and think that those were worked by human hands.
0: All right, with all that being said, let's look at the basics of antlers because it's pretty amazing. Um, they are found on the heads of male members of the deer family with the exception of reindeers, in which female mm-hmm. reindeers also have a set of antlers they're made of bone and they sprout from the pedicle, which is a bony growth located just above the skull.
1: Yeah, and it's worth worth uh, stressing again that these are gen- this is genuine bone we're talking about here. Antelope, sheep, goats, uh, creatures of this nature—they have horns rather than antlers, and the difference here is that uh, horns are made of uh, keratin. Uh, the material uh, you'll find in your fingernails or in the hair or in claws, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they're not uh, routinely shed in this manner.
0: Yeah, right. If you have a horn, if you're sporting a horn and it breaks off, too bad. Yeah. It's not going to grow back. But if you have antlers, they will grow back, and we'll discuss a little bit more about that. Hardened antlers are made up of roughly 45% protein, 22% calcium, 11% phosphorus, and 1% fat. They also contain magnesium, sodium. Aluminum, potassium, copper, manganese, and zinc. And the chemical composition of antlers varies with the location and can be affected by envirom- environmental factors like soil characteristics and the amount of rainfall during the antler growth cycle. And that's what I think is so cool about these antlers is they really respond to the environment.
1: Yeah, genetics, age, and diet are, all, are the three key factors in, uh, in antler growth. And uh, and yeah, we've, scientists have spent a lot of time just tr- trying to figure out exactly, you know, how how everything comes together in the formation of these antlers, indeed what the antlers are for, uh, what purpose they have, why in most ca- most species the males have antlers and the females don't, and then in the case of uh, reindeer and caribou, why do the females have antlers? That throws off a lot of the theories, and you have to 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 reanalyze the situation.
0: Now, one of the most outstanding examples of antlers is the Irish elk. It's known as the giant deer, Megalosaurus gigantus. Of course, it's extinct now. But analysis of its bones and teeth by scientists uh, who are based in Britain and Russia showed the huge herbivore survived until about 5,000 B.C. It stood about 7 feet tall, 2.1 meters at the shoulder. And the adult males had massive antlers that spanned... About twelve feet across, that's three point seven meters, and they weighed up to eighty eight pounds or forty kilos.
1: That's quite a rack.
0: Nice. I was wondering if that would get worked in. So, what would be the purpose of having such a huge rack?
1: Well, that's that's one of the questions that's uh, that that we've we've struggled with over time. What? Uh, why did we actually? Why do they actually have these antlers? And there are actually several key theories that have been thrown around. Uh, and, and a lot of them are kind of related, and some of the additional theories kind of use, uh, one or two of these, mm-hmm. uh, in, in, uh, in making their final argument.
0: And there's no definitive answer here, we right. should
1: say. Yeah, which is kind of surprising. It's, it's easy to take for granted that antlers, surely we know why they work, and it, it, at a surface level, it's easy to, to just go along with it with any one of these, uh, these theories. But, uh, the first one, signal of male quality. So, This one, of course, just comes down to breeding, just comes down to uh, acquiring a mate, sending a message to a potential mate, hey, look at me, I'm healthy, I got the genetics, Mm -hmm. I am clearly the deer or moose or what have you that you should mate with.
0: So, yeah, I mean, this is basically transmitting, like, I have a really healthy diet, I spend a lot of time out in the sun, not playing video games, you should choose me.
1: Now another theory is that, uh, these are weapons used to fight other males. And, uh, and it's kind of funny to refer to this as a theory, since we do see plenty of deer uh, and, and similar animals fighting with each other with their antlers. But the idea here is that breeding season starts. Male deer need to use their antlers to fight and establish dominance with other males. And indeed, they, like I say, they do use them for this purpose.
0: Yeah, and some of them don't even engage in combat. So the idea here is that a glorious display of antlers may be enough for another deer to stand down. So yeah, I mean, they, they may spar, And if they do, well, hey, it kind of shows, like, that one is the dominant one and they should stand down. Or maybe they just look at each other and say, forget it.
1: So it's essentially your your classic, that's not a knife, this is a knife scenario.
0: Or as I like to think of, uh, you just referenced Crocodile Dundee, but Uh I like to think of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, yes. When Harrison Ford is is met with an aggressor with a knife and then he just pulls out a gun. Oh, yeah. The guy's like, forget
1: it. Yeah, the guy, like, pulls out this big knife or almost like a scimitar or something. Yeah swirling it around That's doing right. this impressive display and then uh Ford just shoots him and makes short work of him. Yeah. Um now another theory is that this is a display dominance si- and this kind of ties into what we've already discussed. The size of the antlers of the deer uh displays age related dominance between males uh without the males actually having to fight. So we touched on that already. And then another theory is defense against predators. And this is the the, the basic idea that you grow those antlers. Um, as much, or if not exclusively, because you have to defend yourself against predators. You, as, a, as an antler-bearing species, you are a prey animal, and things are out to get you. So yeah, it's easy to think of these antlers as essentially like the big gaudy gold watch that an individual is wearing <laughs> at the beach, and that sends the message, "Hey, I got plenty of resources. Uh, I'm clearly the guy you need to uh, hang out with and breed with." But uh, but but then, what do we do? What do we think when we look at female reindeer, female caribou that are sporting antlers as well? Uh, well, there's an interesting article on this from smithsonian.com. Uh, this is, uh, from, from, why do some females have horns by Gary, uh, Layden. And, uh, there, there's been a, he points out there's been a, a lot of, of, uh, research that's gone into this question because again, it kind of becomes pivotal to our whole question about antlers in general, mm-hmm. because here are these females running around with them. What does it mean? Uh, Points out that in tiny uh, monogamous deer and antelope populations, uh, the, the females and the males tend to look more alike. There's less difference. Uh, they're you know they're pair bonded. They have basic horns or antlers to defend against predators. Mm-hmm. Nothing fancy. Meanwhile, when you look to the larger species, uh, that's where you see uh, more of this male competition uh, and uh, for the females, and you see this difference, uh, this antlered or horned difference between the males and the females.
0: Well, so to me that. Uh that gets more to the question of sexual selection, because mm-hmm. then you start to think about peacocks and the male peacocks and their glorious displays. Like the bigger right. the display, the, the more they seem like they would be the ones to mate with, or at least that's the idea. And particularly when you consider that hole in logic with antlers and protection, like if that's what they're there for, it doesn't make sense, because then all deer, no matter you know if we're, you're talking about uh, a moose, or you know a roe deer, all of them would have a set of antlers to protect themselves with.
1: Yeah, indeed. Uh, to, now, two of the the theories out there uh, regarding why have antlers, why have horns, if you're if if you're a female in the species, uh, one of these is a hypothesis proposed by Richard Estes, uh, who works with uh, wildebeest in East Africa, and he suggests that horned or antlered females benefit by confusing adult males as to who the young males in the group are. So the strategy here would be to keep the young males in the group longer so they can grow bigger before heading out on their own. Hmm. Now, a more recent theory proposed by uh, Ted Stankowicz of the University of Massachusetts and Tim Caro of the University of California at Davis argues that females can't really hide in protective cover and that those who must defend a feeding territory are more likely to have horns or antlers than those who live in a protective habitat or don't defend a territory. So the argument here is we see females with antlers among caribou and reindeer because they're living out in the open, out in clear visibility. They can't just depend on running and hiding, so mm-hmm. they, they would need those antlers in a sense for, for, for protection, but also just to not stand out from the antlered and protective uh, uh, male members of the society. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think there's just so many different factors that play into this. Um And so the jury's out, but I guess we could all probably agree that they likely serve as both armament and ornament.
1: Yeah, and then you, there are even additional theories, like there's the theory that reindeer all have the antlers because they use their antlers as tools to, to clear away snow mm-hmm. when they're feeding.
0: Snow plowing.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, but, but then, for instance, what do you think then when you look at the moose? Because there's an argument that in moose, the antlers may act as a large hearing aid. Um, and that makes
0: sense because they have more of a surface area, it right? It makes
1: sense, yeah. But then why do only male moose have those antlers?
0: Because uh, they never listen.
1: <laughs> so hopefully that that uh, relays uh, something of the the mystery surrounding the antler and why we're still studying antlers and trying to, to figure out exactly why they evolved, and, and how they function uh, for, for these uh, these different uh, deer- and deer-like creatures.
0: Indeed. And now we're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk about how antlers are exquisitely sensitive to their environment. All
1: right, we're back. Uh, we're discussing antlers. We've talked about antlers and their their cultural impact on humans, and our attempts to understand them and their uh, their owners from sort of a, a supernatural standpoint. Uh, we've talked about uh, our scientific attempts to understand what antlers are and why they form and what function they serve. Uh, now we're going to discuss the uh, role that the environment plays in the the, uh, the formation of antlers, and and indeed the the cyclical nature of antler growth and shedding
0: which is all dependent on the amount of light that they are exposed to. And uh, I'm really enjoying the fact that this is coming up again because we've been talking about light and dark and how it is so much the underpinnings of each species' existence. Well, here again is another great example because there's something called the photoperiod. And what we're talking about is an interval in a 24-hour period during which a plant or an animal is exposed to light.
1: And of course, periods of sunlight alter during the course of a year. It's seasonally dependent, and uh, and there is a seasonal cycle to what the deer are doing, to their breeding cycle. And, uh, and and as we've discussed, most of the theories with the antlers seem to revolve around the use of antlers as a as a display, as a as a, as a weapon in the acquiring of of mates.
0: So if you look at these, this photo period, then, you know, it's pretty obvious that in the summer you have longer days. You have more sunlight mm-hmm. and bucks produce higher levels of testosterone, which in turn trigger antler development. So antlers start as cartilage growing from bases. Those bases that we called out earlier called mm-hmm. pedicles and a fuzzy skin known as velvet, which is really rich in blood vessels and it's sensitive to the touch. It supplies the growing antlers with essential nutrients. Now I'm not going to call it an umbilical cord. But it's doing the same sort of job here, essentially.
1: Yeah, just as a side note to touch on the testosterone issue, if a a deer is castrated either um, uh, on purpose or just by accident in the course of its life, it will stop this uh, cycle of growth. It will grow one pair of misshapen antlers and then keep those for the rest of its life.
0: Now, if it's not castrated, which out in the Mm -hmm. wild, assuming that's not going to happen, and as the amount of daylight dwindles later in summer, the bucks go through another testosterone increase, and that triggers... A mineralization and hardening of the antlers. And then you get into fall and you have the bucks rubbing their antlers on vegetation to remove the velvet. And that reveals these bony antlers and that carries them through fall and winter. And then after the breeding season, you have a drop in a buck's testosterone level and that triggers the antlers to release from their pedicles. And then within days, Uh, You have a formation of a scab-like material over those pedicles. And the process starts anew with the development of these new growth cells for the antlers.
1: So obviously, if you're going to go out in the woods and look for antlers, uh, winter is the time to do it because uh, shed antlers are often difficult to find, really, because they have this high protein content and an abundance of calcium phosphate. So rodents uh, are quick to consume them. So if you do find antlers in the wild... Uh, you know, snatch them up and consider yourself lucky. Or if you're a rodent, uh, you know, have a bite.
0: Although do you consider that it is someone's habitat, right? Yes. That rodents, like, what are you doing?
1: Yeah, you are interfering with the habitat, I take but then you can argue that, well, we already unbalanced the habitat, so right. there should be plenty of antlers out there. So maybe we're just doing our part to keep that the uh, the rodents thin. I don't
0: know. I don't know. Now the significance of the photo period is really huge. In controlled lab experiments, bucks have been capable of producing multiple sets of antlers in a single year. As well as retaining a single set of antlers for several years, just by altering the amount of light that they're exposed to.
1: Wow, see that—that's good information. Because I found myself wondering when I was uh, reading about this, I was like, "What if you took a deer mm-hmm. from North America and you put it on a plane, booked it a flight mm-hmm. all the way to Australia? What happens? You know, because you're shifting the seasons, you're shifting the right. light, and obviously, yeah, you change the the amount of light the deer is getting, and then you end up hacking into that uh, antler antler cycle." So. There you go. Indeed. Now, I do want to point out that antler is is bone, but it is particularly tough bone because, mm-hmm. uh, obviously, our own bones break when they uh, encounter uh, a lot of force. And when you see two moose or caribou or or, or deer going at it with their antlers, uh it's it's almost kind of shocking that you're not seeing antlers just splinter and break all over the place well there's a 2000, 2009 study from John Curry at the University of York in the UK and, and um, he was looking at the, the the structure of the antlers how you know how much uh, wear and tear they can take and he found that hardened antlers that's the the antlers that they they have in fall for the breeding season Um <laughs> That they are 2.4 times tougher than normal wet bone, and he also found that they could survive impacts six times greater than, the, than impacts that shatter a wet femur.
0: That's why the samurai warrior yeah wore them on a, on his helmet, right?
1: Yeah, uh, just one more reason to uh, embody that creature and, whisk and risk deer madness uh, before you go into battle. <laughs> Now, speaking of Eastern traditions with antlers, you can do more than just wear them on your helmet. You can, of course, uh, grind them up and, uh, and use them in your medicine. Deer antler has been a common ingredient in Chinese tonic preparations for some time, dating back at least 2,000 years. And in Chinese traditional medicine, it's thought to nourish the yin, tonify the kidney, invigorate the spleen, strengthen bones and muscles, and promote blood flow. And it's still used in uh, in Chinese traditional medicine today to uh, treat a number of ailments, including uh, mammary hyperplasia, malignant sores, children's mumps, et cetera.
0: Now, in the West, um, some researchers are, are very interested in antlers because of the rapid growth of antlers. So at the height, we're talking about an eighth of an inch a day, which is pretty incredible. So they're interested because they're thinking about this sort of regenerative properties that the cells possess. They're also looking to antlers as treatments for maladies like osteoarthritis.
1: Yeah, in fact, a 2012 study from the University of Casilla-La Mancha in Spain uh, suggests that the origin of osteoporosis could be directly linked to a lack of minerals uh, essential to calcium absorption, uh, name, namely uh, manganese, rather than a lack of calcium. And this was all based on their studies of antlers. And this is because uh, previous antler studies had shown that manganese is necessary for calcium absorption. So this uh, this hypothesis all boils around uh, the idea that uh, when the human body absorbs less manganese or when it uh, is sent from the skeleton to other organs that require it, such as the brain, the calcium that's extracted uh, at the same time is then not properly absorbed and is excreted in the urine.
0: Which is really important, right? Because yeah. a lot of people who are trying to avoid osteoporosis are trying to really take a lot of calcium supplements or add it to their diet with foods. But if you don't have the manganese to help facilitate absorption, well, then it doesn't matter, right?
1: Yeah. Any kind of study that is looking into the formation of bone or the, the weakening of bone, uh, and antlers provide a, a very interesting, and very extreme model to study.
0: Now, a team of researchers in South Korea, reported finding evidence that deer antlers uh, contain multi-potent stem cells that could be useful for tissue regeneration in veterinary medicine. Uh, they specifically noted that injury to wild animals, including deer themselves, could be treated using deer antler-derived cells. And they pointed out that studies involving the use of horse Stem cells have found clinical application of equine-derived stem cells. So in other words, perhaps this could make its way to humans as well.
1: Speaking of consumption by humans, um, some of you may be familiar with deer velvet, a uh, common name of a product made from growing antlers of deer. Uh, during that stage when they're covered in that soft, velvety uh, substance we were discussing earlier, and uh, you will find it in a number of non-FDA approved and uh, varying degrees of suspicious products <laughs> to uh, to help you uh, help you heal after an injury, to help you in your training, etc.
0: Yeah, uh, deer velvet contains a growth hormone called insulin-like growth factor one, or IGF one. And as you say, it's an unproven performance enhancer often used by athletes who think that it could help heal cartilage and tendon injuries more quickly and boost their strength and endurance.
1: Yeah, it's a a growth hormone. And these can be useful for, you know, for for instance, young people that have, uh, you know, stunted growth. Mm -hmm. It can be people who suffer from uh, 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 dwarfism-related factors of that. And even in the healing of cartilage and, uh, and tendon injuries. But it's generally not something that gets recommended for people who are just, training and w- wanting to bulk up uh because uh, there can be a number of uh, adverse side effects including the tendons becoming too tight and uh and, and easy to break or it can even disrupt the way that the body uh, metabolizes fats and sugar so it can it, it it can throw things out of whack
0: indeed it can so don't don't take that deer antler supplement it's yes. just i mean you're trying to hack into your own body and do that's just not a good idea indeed um now recently a hunter in slovenia Brought down a roe deer with what appeared to be a unicorn horn.
1: Ah, a single horn, a single uh, um, antler-like formation atop its head instead mm-hmm. of two. Yeah, uh, and in a way, like the unicorn is 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 very much in that uh, that area of the mystical deer. You know, it's the mystical forest animal that's that's holy and elusive, and uh, and so.
0: Well, you've seen that Tom Cruise uh, documentary, oh, Legend, right? Legend, yes,
1: yeah. I was just thinking about that the the other day when when I saw this this article because there's a whole goblins are hunting the unicorn before the devil, you know, your, your typical goblin devil unicorn plot. Sure. Um But uh, in this case, this was not an actual unicorn. This was a, again a deer with two antlers that were grown together, uh, and and this was just a really rare form of antler deformity, but. There are a number of antler deformities that can take place due to, uh you know, injury to the, the pedicle, um, injury to the animal itself, mm-hmm. dietary, genetic uh, aspects, castration that we mentioned earlier. So you do see a, a lot of malformation of antlers out there uh, in uh, deer, moose, caribou, reindeer populations, and this just was an extreme example of that.
0: It was because the pedicles grew together, so mm-hmm. it appeared to be just like a single unicorn-like. Uh, protrusion.
1: I, I thought it was interesting that the, the, the article that we're looking at, they um, they pointed out that the hunter probably was not able to identify it as having a single um, antler as opposed to two mm-hmm. before he shot it, because instantly people would say, why did you kill the unicorn? Why not, why not bring this in? And indeed, he might have been uh, kicking himself because you could have taken this thing on the road, right?
0: And then he came up with some sort of folkloric rationalization for it, right? <laughs> It yeah. it made me follow it into the forest. There
1: you go, into the deeper woods. and you have no choice but to kill it lest it uh draw you in and you see a naked goddess and then you get turned into a deer and eaten by hounds. So.
0: And it's all over. Yeah. Yep.
1: Cycle of life. Cycle of life. All right, so there you have it. Uh the mystery of the antler. Uh just a you know, a, a crash course in uh the cultural importance of deer and antlers, the science of uh, of antlers, uh what we know, what questions still remain, and, uh, and, and we'd love to, to hear from anyone out there who has uh, some added bits that they've come across, or just their own experience with the uh, elusive and mystical deer.
0: Might I insert a slight diversion? Because okay. I cannot, you know how you're, you're, you're sitting here thinking, you're podcasting, and you have like the one nagging thought. And I was thinking, a lot of this, these, these antlers bring up, again, these tropes of masculinity and so forth. And then I thought about a picture that a Swedish woman recently showed me that seems to be an American thing in which instead of like fastening antlers to your car, say, which I've seen before, uh-huh. people are putting what looks to be um, iron castings of testicles hanging from the front of their car. Do you know of this?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, so you? Are you being facetious you' I took a Swedish
0: this? woman I know oh. to show me I was like wait are you sure this is an American oh thing? i
1: i I almost mentioned them them earlier I believe they're called truck nuts and yes! yeah they've they've been around for a while. I think they started showing up uh, a few years back and uh, it, it indeed is about making your your truck more masculine I guess by putting testicles on it um i I don't pretend to to understand it, but it seems to be very much a, composed of the same energy as as putting these protective uh you know, deer motifs on your
0: vehicle. yeah, I thought, wow, like gun racks aren't enough and and uh, antlers aren't enough that you gotta have truck nuts.
1: yeah, I mean it it's always seemed a little bit weird to me too because it's like they're exposed right there on the truck like I, even on the human body, it's kind of uh, kind of ridiculous. And if you're just parking your truck at Walmart and it has its testicles hanging out, you're just asking for somebody to to kick your truck in the <laughs> balls or to or to do something worse to, to the balls. I mean,
0: uh, yeah, I want to weave this into some sort of vulnerability thing, like Brene Brown's talk on vulnerability and how important this is. So maybe it's a way of saying, yes, I'm vulnerable sometimes. Yeah, these these are my nuts.
1: Because if they castrate your truck, then the ho- the antlers are going to grow weird as we discussed and nobody <laughs> nice. wants that nicely
0: done you wrap that up okay um, guys if you want to find uh, more out about us you can visit stuffwithblowyourmind.com
1: where you'll find all the podcast episodes all the videos all the blog posts links to social media accounts that we maintain all that good stuff
0: and if you have any thoughts you want to send our way please do and you can do so by sending an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com